so much. You can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you very much, team. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Good evening to you. Thanks for coming out to our April night of worship. And again, thanks. I like the uh, acoustic living room set we've got going on. I'm excited to be with you. I, uh, I'm going to warn you, I just got back last night from, I uh, was leading a week-long uh, ministry trip and managed three days ago to pick up some kind of sickness. So uh, I'm taking some medication, which is making me a little fuzzy up here. So the bad news is I may have a moment or two where I sound like I'm going through a second puberty. The good news is um, if I say something crazy, it's not my fault. I'm on medication. So hey. So anyway, uh, we are going to talk about the lovely topic of temptation. So how do we get into that? In the beginning, God made everything and he made it good because he is good. He made humans and he made them in his image and he made them good because he is good. A lot of us don't realize this and even more of us don't give this a lot of thought throughout our everyday life, but right now, always has been, always will be, there is a cosmic battle going on between good and evil, between God and his arch enemy, Satan. God is on a mission to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and to break us free from the slavery to sin. And Satan is on a mission to try to get back at God and hurt him. And by hurting God, he goes after what God loves most. He goes after us, God's children. And he does so by tempting us to sin. Sin is anything that goes against God, against the goodness of God. So in the beginning, God made it all and he made it good. And then Satan comes into our story in Genesis 3. And he comes to Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, and he tempts them with three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, Genesis 3, verse 6. Satan has exactly four moves, you guys. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and death. And he doesn't play this one, death, until he's messed around a long time with this. Every time you sin, every time I sin, we are giving in to one of those temptations. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Satan has no other moves than that. Same thing over and over. He tempts us with those. So let's talk about this temptation thing. What is temptation? Well, I have a working definition that I pulled off of uh, the internet that I'm hoping is good. Oh, there it is. Hey, look at that. Temptation, to entice or allure to do something regarded as unwise, wrong, or immoral. That is what temptation is. And like I said, there are three temptations. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life. Those aren't original with me. In fact, John writes in 1 John 2.16, he says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Every time I sin, I am giving in to one of these three pressures or a combination of them. Every time. Okay, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions tonight. First assumption. I am assuming that because you are here, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If that's wrong, please come and talk to somebody and let's fix that tonight. But I'm assuming that you are here because you are a follower of Jesus. Assumption number two. I am assuming because you are a follower of Jesus, you understand that Jesus has called us to live a holy life and to fight sin in our life. We're not just supposed to give in. So those are the assumptions that my comments are gonna to come to you from. So if, if we can establish that, that's where this is coming from. What does that fight look like? Well, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse seven and eight. At the end of his life, he writes about the fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So you probably know this, but the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in Greek. I'm going to Greek out on you for just a second here. So in this passage, the Greek word here is not talking about a one-time event. It's talking about an ongoing continual action. So you could almost translate this verse we just read as a good fight I have been and am fighting. A good race I have been and am running. It's an ongoing, never-ending struggle. The idea and the picture I put in my mind and I hope you put in your mind is that you are in a boxing match. You're in the ring and you're throwing punches and you're trying to hit the opponent and the opponent is hitting you and sometimes you land some, sometimes he lands some. It might knock you down. The key is you get back up because we keep fighting. So, why do we keep fighting? Because Paul tells us There's a crown waiting for him, but not just for him, but for all those who long for his appearing. There is a crown waiting for you if you get back up. So fight and get up. Society and culture tell us that sin isn't really a big deal. Everyone does it. In fact, if you've ever watched a news clip or a press release when a politician or a CEO of a big company or a celebrity gets caught in sin, usually something is said like, mistakes were made. (laughs) Wow. Society says sin isn't a big deal. Jesus says something completely different. Look at what his words say in Matthew 18. In verses eight and nine, he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Sin is a big deal. Now, it's everywhere though. So there's this idea, it's always been in church uh, history. You can see it multiple times throughout church history. This idea that, okay, there's a lot of sin and God gives grace when we sin. So maybe we should just sin so we get more grace. Uh, No, that's bad. Um, Paul specifically speaks to this in Romans 6. I've condensed the whole passage, but this is what Romans 6 says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Summary statement, we cannot ignore or overlook sin. It's important. Now, let me point out three logical arguments or excuses we could be tempted to make to excuse sin in our lives. Before I do that, I want to point out, just because something is logical does not make it theological, okay? So I'm going to give you the the logical excuse you might be tempted to use, and then I'm going to give you the theological backup of why we can't go there. So logical excuse number one, God made me, these desires are natural, so they're from God. What can you do? Theological response. God does not tempt you to sin. Never has, never will. Look at what James wrote in his book. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We go from desire to sin to death very quickly. It escalates very quickly. So, logical excuse number two. You don't understand, TJ. This temptation is different. I cannot beat this one. Theological response. Someone somewhere has successfully faced this same temptation. How can I say that? It's not my words. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There is always, always, always an exit ramp and an escape route. It may be hard to find, but God promises it's always there. Logical excuse number three. Jesus is the only one who faced temptation and never sinned, but he's Jesus. (laughs) Theological response. Yes, but he is a sympathetic high priest. He understands and he beat temptation for you. Look at these very encouraging words from Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, not only did he face temptation, but he faced it in the exact same way we did and he beat it for us. Let me show you what I mean. As we discussed earlier, In the beginning, God made it all and he made it good. He made humans and he made them in his image and made them good and in relationship with him. That's how it was meant to be. Satan comes into the story and he tempts Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, to sin. Adam and Eve are what is called our federal head. Basically what they do holds up against, uh, against us in court. Easiest example I can think of, if Justin Trudeau declared war on another country, we're all at war, whether or not you voted for him because he is our, lib- our federal head, our liberal, <laughs> he's that too. That's funny, because that wasn't even in the notes. Anyway, um, medication, hey, that's not on me. Um, because he's our federal head. What he does holds up against us in court. Adam and Eve are our federal head. God puts them in the Garden of Eden. He gives them one rule. He says, you can eat of any tree you see in here except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The minute you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Satan comes into the story and he tempts them. And Genesis 3 verse 6 says, Eve looked at the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and saw that it was good for food, something we call lust of the flesh, and good to look at, something we call lust of the eyes, and able to make one wise, something we call pride of life. She takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives it to Adam, he eats it, and you and I instantly, because they are our federal head, if they eat the fruit, we eat the fruit. If they sin, we sin. If they die, we die. Instantly, we're all Slaves to sin. It's called original sin. Flash forward several thousand years, and we meet the only other man in human history to be born without an earthly father, and therefore no, blood, or no sin line. Original sin is broken. His name is Jesus Christ. Adam was the first one. Jesus is the second one. He's born. He lives perfect for 30 years. He's baptized. He's taken out into the wilderness. He's tempt, or he fasts and prays for 40 days so that he's physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally weak. And Satan comes and tempts him. And doesn't just tempt him. Tempts him the exact same way. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, he says that Satan comes and says, 
see this stone? Turn it into bread, knead it, lust the flesh. Jesus rejects it, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, oh, you say you're God? Prove it, jump, the angels will catch you. Pride of life. Jesus rejects. He takes him into what I believe must be the fourth dimension because somehow he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, everything you see is yours. Just bow down and worship me. Everything you see, lust of the eyes. So Jesus faces the exact same temptations, lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes, same as Adam and Eve. But there's more. A lot of us don't realize this, but there's a couple of different ways you can record history. One is what we're used to, which is chronological. What happened yesterday gets written down before what happens today. What happens today gets written down before what happens tomorrow. That's one way. Very common amongst the Jews. Matthew was a Jew who was writing to a Jewish audience. That's how he records his book. Most likely, the temptations of Jesus happen the way they're recorded in Matthew 4. Stones to bread. Uh, jump at the angels will catch you. All the kingdoms of the world are yours. Most likely. There's another way to record history. It's like thematically or conceptually. So the idea is it's totally acceptable to record what happens yet tomorrow before what happened yesterday if it helps the reader understand a concept or follow a theme. It's more popular amongst the Gentiles. Luke is a Greek who is writing to a Gentile audience. When you get to chapter four of his book, he records the temptations, but he records them as stones to bread, uh, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours, jump and the angels will catch you. He changes the order. This is not a discrepancy in scripture between Matthew and Luke. This is actually on purpose. Matthew's book sets up very chronologically. The very first thing you have is the genealogy of Jesus. Because how can you know who Jesus is if you don't know who his parents were and grandparents and all that? So you get the genealogy. Jesus is born, early life. He's baptized. And then the temptations. Luke just starts with the prophecy, his, his birth, his early life. Then he's baptized. Then at the end of chapter 3, he sticks in his genealogy. Matthew put his at the beginning of his book, and he traces it back to Abraham, the father of the, Israel, or the Jewish nation. Luke puts his at the end of chapter 3, after the baptism, and he doesn't take it back to Abraham. He takes it back to the son of Adam, the son of God. And then he records the temptations, and he records them as stones to bread, lust of flesh, all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes, and jump and the angels will catch you, pride of life. Hey, what order did Adam and Eve face temptations in? They saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, good to look at, lust of the eyes, able to make one wise, pride of life. What's going on here? Luke is using a literary form to make a very clear point to you and to me. And that is, there are two Adams. There are two federal heads. The first one, he had our eternal destiny in his hands and he faced the temptation of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He ate the fruit, messed it up for all of us. But we have a second federal head. He is the second Adam as he is called in Romans. The first one messed it up. The second one comes along, faces the exact same temptations in the exact same order. Stones to bread, lust of the flesh. Um, all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes, jump and the angel will catch you, pride of life. He doesn't give in to the temptation, he withstands it, and now we stand a chance at sin being broken. First Adam, second Adam, first sin, second option of sin, lust of flesh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the eyes, pride of life, pride of life. Sin forever, possible salvation, because he is on a mission to reconcile things to himself. But there's more. What is this temptation really about? Because if you think about it, nothing that Satan tempted Jesus with was bad. For instance, first temptation, turn this stone into bread, make food out of nothing. In a couple of months, 
Jesus is gonna take five loaves and two fish and he's gonna feed over 5,000 people. That's making food out of nothing. So it can't be sin to do that. If Jesus were on the pinnacle of the temple and he jumped and he were in danger, would the angels catch him? Yes, so it's not wrong. All the kingdoms of the world will be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Philippians 2 tells us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So one day, all kingdoms of the world will be his. So what is the temptation? Satan, this is really interesting, Satan is not tempting Jesus with something that's not rightfully his. He's tempting him to change the timeline. He's telling Jesus, everything you have coming to you, I'll give to you right now without the cross. I will give you everything you have coming except the cross. You go my way, we'll skip the cross. Here's the problem. He's our federal head. If he doesn't die the perfect death as the perfect man, I'm going to hell. And this temptation is suddenly so much more than just feed your physical hunger. Eternity, reconciliation of that relationship with God is in the balance. If Jesus gives in, I am going to hell forever. If he withstands, I stand a chance. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, withstands and we can be made right. The first Adam brought us into slavery to sin. The second Adam breaks the power. He doesn't just face the same temptations. He didn't just face the same temptations. He faced them in the same order, in the same way the first Adam did, but he didn't give in. And now we are free from the power of sin. We can be liberated from slavery to sin. We can fight back and we can and we must. And now that doesn't mean it's easy. Even once you're a believer, it's still a struggle. In fact, you remember Paul, he was kind of a big deal, <laughs> inspiration, wrote scripture. Listen to how he talks about his battle with sin in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For, the, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The point is, I told you it's a struggle. The point is now it is a struggle. You see, before Jesus, there was no struggle. It was a given. You're, you're going to sin. You're a slave to sin. It's your master and you're gonna obey. But now the master has been broken. We have a new master and we can struggle and so we must. So with that in mind, I wanna just give us a couple of practical, what do we do with it? What are three keys? I'm sure there are more, I just came up with three. What are three keys to successfully overcoming temptation, to fighting back and to beating sin in our life? Key number one. Don't put yourself in a compromising situation. Temptation will find you and it will be hard enough. You don't need to make it easier for temptation. <laughs> don't put yourself in a compromising situation. If you and your boyfriend or girlfriend want to do sex God's way, but you like each other and are red-blooded humans, probably don't be alone at night. <laughs> Being alone at night is not sin. Sex outside of marriage is. So don't do it. That's kind of what I'm saying here. If you're a jerk online, maybe get off social media. 
or delete the app. If you, <laughs> that's the one that got applause. <laughs> All right. That's a great segue for me to invite the worship team to come back on up because people are ready, man. Delete the app. If you think you might have a drinking problem, don't keep alcohol in your house. If, if you're addicted to pornography, charge your phone in the kitchen. Oh, but it's my alarm clock. Buy an alarm clock. They're like 10 bucks at Walmart. Better yet, come talk to me and I'll talk to Mike and Michael buy you, buy you an alarm clock. He didn't know that, but we just, you know. But no, think about that. Some of us are dying. We're spiritually dying because of our phone and we keep it right by our bed. If your right eye offends you, gouge it out and throw it away. Take your phone and throw it away or charge it in the kitchen. Don't put yourself in a compromising situation. You are not the exception. I am not the exception. Every time we act like an exception, bad things happen. David didn't go to war when he was supposed to and he ends up committing adultery and murder. Saul offers a sacrifice that wasn't his to offer. The kingdom gets ripped away from him. Samson rejects his Nazarite vow and he ends up blind and in slavery. Solomon marries a bunch of pagan foreign women and they turn their heart, his heart away from God. We are not the exception. So, key number one, don't put yourself in a compromising situation. Key number two, recruit a team to help you. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. David had Jonathan, Paul had Barnabas, and then Silas. Recruit someone, multiple people. Find people who love God and who love you and are willing to answer the phone or text back when you text, I'm struggling, pray for me. Or just come up with your code word that when this comes in, I need you. Someone who will ask you the tough questions and say, are you fighting or are you giving it? And they'll call out your stupidity. You need a friend who will actually tell you when you're being dumb. And let me encourage you, for a lot of us, that starts tonight when there are prayer partners available. Come talk to somebody. Stop going alone. Christian life wasn't meant to be alone. You're not an exception. So key number one, don't put yourself in compromising situations. Key number two, recruit a team. Key number three, because if you just have those two, that's not enough. It sounds good. It's not enough. We have to love Jesus more than we love our sin. If you do not love Jesus... If you do not love Jesus and you're just trying to overcome the sin through willpower, it's not going to happen. But if it is motivated by love and out of a desire not to hurt the God you love, now you stand a chance to fight back. Let me give you an illustration that helps me. Maybe it'll help you. My wife loves sports, for which I'm very thankful. She hates combat sports. I like sports, and com including combat sports. So before, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm not sure which part you're clapping for, but I appreciate you. Um, before... I was married before we were dating. I would have thought nothing of like, because we were friends first before we started dating, inviting her over and having a boxing match on the TV. Wouldn't have thought anything of it. But now that I know her and that knowledge has led to a deep love, I kind of have a rule in my life. No fighting or UFC or anything on the TV. If I really, like I cannot tell you the last time I watched a full boxing match or a UFC fight. Like I don't remember. If I really care who won, I'll go like to the office, pull up my phone and I'll watch the highlights so she doesn't see it. But, and sometimes I don't even do that and I don't feel like I'm suffering or missing out because my love for her is so much greater and more important than knowing who won between Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. So it's just a simple example of because of love, I have a rule in my life. But that brings up a question. How do we get to the point where we love Jesus more than we love our sin? 
How do we get to the point where we love Jesus more than we love sex or porn or weed or wine or the feeling of power and control when we just let ourselves burst out with anger at somebody or the dopamine hit from another social media follower or from an online purchase or something, whatever your vice is, how do we get to the point where we love Jesus more than we love that? It will only happen if we grow to love Jesus and the only way we'll grow to love Jesus is if we know him. And the only way I'll know him is if I get close enough to him to spend time with him the same way I grew to love my wife. Second Peter 1, 3 to 4 says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And then in James, we read in chapter four, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. One of the attributes of God is called his immutability. It means he has the inability to change. He cannot change. So if you're feeling distance between your relationship with God, he can't change. That means you moved. So come back. If there's distance between you and God, he didn't move. You moved. Come back and he's waiting for you. I promise. So spend some time with Jesus. Let me warn you. He is the most polarizing person in human history. No one has ever met him and not changed. People met him and were ready to kill him. Other people met him and were ready to be killed for him, but no one has ever spent any time with Jesus and not changed. So you've been warned, get to know Jesus, you're gonna change. And then as you know him, grow to love him. And as you love him, let him rearrange your life and your desires. And you'll start to see sin become less important as Jesus becomes more important. From the very beginning, Satan has been trying to destroy God's children by tempting them with the lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But also from the very beginning, God has been on a mission to reconcile his image back to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thanks to Jesus, Satan's stronghold is broken. God's plan of salvation and freedom is stronger than your sin and the power of sin is broken. If you have not met this Jesus, that's your first step. Get to know him. But if you have met Jesus, the victory is already won for you. You no longer fight for victory. You now fight from victory. That is That changes everything. So the team is going to play a few songs. And we're going to work our way through some response. What do we do with this? But I want you to remember two things as you leave tonight from this part of our service. Two things, number one, we have been called to wage the war against sin and temptation, but number two, Jesus has already won the fight for us. We can be victorious in and through him. So for the love of God, I'm asking you, whatever sin you're fighting, whatever part Satan is kicking your butt with, get back in the ring and fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and fight because there's a crown waiting for you. Father, thank you. Thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Don't let us abuse that grace, God, but let us access it when we need it. Thank you that tomorrow morning, there's gonna be new mercies waiting by our bed again. Thank you that you care and you fixed our problem for us. And so now, whatever obedience 
and surrender looks like for each person. Do the work that only you can do. Holy Spirit, have free reign in here. Continue to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, we are going to move into a time of response. This first song, it's Lord, I need you. And I specifically asked for it because there's this line. So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I am going to ask you to confess your sin to God. Whatever that sin is that is standing between you and a closer relationship to God, the thing that has put distance between you and God, confess it. There is nothing sacred or special about where you pray, but there does seem to be something mental and emotional about when we react. So I'm gonna encourage you to come to the altar if that is something you're willing to do. Turn at your chair. There are gonna be prayer partners up here. Find someone. James tells us that confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. So this first song, all I want you to do is one of two things. Either confess to God the sin that is holding you back between him and you, or I want you to sing your heart out to him. And then we'll move to the next part with the next song.